Please stand for the reading of God's Word. My name is Wayne. This is Exodus 3, 10 through 14. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys have a seat. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, team. It's a story that uh, many of you have probably heard many, many times. Even if you didn't grow up in church, um, you surely have heard this story. You have heard of this man, Moses. You have heard of the slaves in Egypt, the Israelites, and uh, Moses going to Pharaoh after he had met God in this bush that was burning. And uh, then telling Pharaoh, let my people go, and all the plagues that happen, and all the, um, you know, the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and then finally sending them out of Egypt after the Passover, um, and the, the killing of the firstborn children, and crossing over the Red Sea, and into this desert Sinai area, and then God meeting them again at the mountain, and giving them the Ten Commandments, all the things. Right? You've heard these stories, even if you've just seen it in, in movies, Prince of Egypt, or whatever. You, you know some of this, at least parts of this, even those who really didn't grow up in church. It's one of the most famous stories um, that's ever been told, ever been written. Um, hopefully today, as we, as we dig into it and really see this moment, this holy moment, and I would submit to you one of the most holy moments in human history. Um, hopefully today, all of us, and, and myself included, we, we just, we ourselves kind of have a holy moment, an encounter with the Lord, and understand that the God who revealed himself to Moses face to flame in that moment is the same God who's here, the same God who lives in me, the same God who lives in you, who resides in us by his spirit. This is our God. He has not changed. He is the same today as he was thousands of years ago when he met with Moses, the I am, the God of Israel. So let's pray. And I just want to jump into this story, Exodus chapter three. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a great and glorious God. I pray today that you would just speak to us and, and open your word up to us. This is how you speak, God, as we open your word and we read and we learn and we, we see who you are, how you've revealed yourself through Moses and then most of all through Jesus, your son, the perfect revelation of yourself, your word made flesh. So God, thank you. Open your word up to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So to give a little bit of background, if you don't know the whole story, as we open up the book of Genesis, right, we see God create all things, right? And then quickly, in the midst of that, human beings begin to sin, and then we call that the fall. And the rest of the book of Genesis is really just showing us what it looks like when the people of this earth live without 
the law of God, right? That's what the book of Genesis is. Anybody on like the year reading plan right now? Like anybody kind of going through that? Some of the, a lot of you are, like I've heard a lot of that. It's really cool. Um, but man, as we read through Genesis, that's what we see. It's a crap show. I'm just being honest. Like Genesis is crazy. And we just see like people just sort of figuring it out on their own, doing whatever they feel like they, they want to do before the law of God exists uh, in the world. Um, it's sort of written on their hearts, but it's not written down in stone yet. And that's where, that's where Exodus comes in. But throughout the book of Genesis, we see God begin to move back toward people even after they've moved away from him and their sin, God continues to move toward us. He continues to move toward people. He calls this man named Abram, becomes Abraham, right? He, he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your descendants, and I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. And in the rest of Genesis, we see his, his son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, who then is renamed Israel, who has 12 sons. And one of those sons, Joseph, ends up, through his brother's wickedness, moving to Egypt, becoming basically vice president in Egypt over time. After being a prisoner, he was, he was second in command in Egypt. And then he saves the entire nation of Egypt, and not just Egypt, but those around Egypt, including his own family, who travels to Egypt in order to get grain during a famine. And Joseph saves them. And then through the story, Joseph moves his family to the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen, kind of right outside the major cities, um, and they lived there. And so now we fast forward over 400 years, and the people of God have been living in Egypt for all that time, and it says that over that time, they begin to multiply. These people are fertile, okay, and they're just having babies, and they begin to multiply greatly, and God begins to do exactly what he told Abraham he was going to do, make them into a great nation. So they're, they're, they're growing massively, and the pharaohs begin to see, oh, okay, these, these people are going to overtake us. They're going to become too much for us. They may join our enemies and, and kind of overthrow our nation. So Pharaoh devises a plan to begin to kill off the children of the Hebrews. He tells the Israelite midwives, hey, when you're helping the Israelite women give birth, um, if it comes out and it is a child, it's a son, I want you to kill him. And the midwives tell Pharaoh, um, no. <laughs> they're not going to do that. And so they don't do that. They fear, it actually says the midwives feared God, not, not Pharaoh, right? Praise the Lord for that. So civil disobedience at its finest there. They say, no, not going to do that. So Pharaoh basically then just makes an edict across the whole land that as the children of Hebrews are born, the male sons should be thrown into the Nile River and, and killed, basically just trying to commit this infanticide of the, the, the Hebrew boys. And um, it, apparently many would do that. But there was one woman at least who decided, you know, I can't, I can't do this. And she takes her son and she puts him in a basket and she sends him down the river, just hoping and praying, Lord, take care of him for the best, right? He's picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh himself. Um, and this little child's sister sees this happen, and the sister tells Pharaoh's daughter, hey, I know a woman, it's the, the mom, right, the actual Hebrew mom, I know a woman who can nurse him, and so she gets to nurse her own son and, and all of that, but he is raised actually as Pharaoh's grandson, he's raised as the, the daughter of Pharaoh's own child, and he's named Moses, which means from the water from the water, which is kind of cool, right? If you think about Moses' life and all that would then happen through the Red Sea and the water from the rock, like oh, the theme of water in Moses' life. Um, but he's, he's named Moses from the water. And he grows up very much a prince of Egypt. I know that's the 90s movie, right? But prince of Egypt, he, he grows up. He would have learned um, all the customs and the ways of the Egyptians, the languages and the skills and the arts and the literature and all these things as, as an Egyptian prince. And, and Moses' life is kind of divided into 40-year sections, okay? So for the first 40 years, that's where he is. He's living in Egypt as, as a prince there in Pharaoh's own household. But then 
one day, and, I, and wherever in his story, maybe when he was being raised by his mom as a, as a young toddler, maybe somewhere in there, he began to be old enough to understand that he was not an Egyptian, he was a Hebrew, but he knew, somehow he knew that he was a Hebrew by birth. And one day he's out and he sees one of the Egyptian slave masters uh, mistreating a Hebrew slave. And he kills the Egyptian, kills him, and he buries him in the sand. He thinks nobody saw this. Right? And then the next day he comes and he sees two Hebrews and they're arguing, they're fighting with one another. And he comes and he kind of steps in the middle of it. You see from early on, Moses is a mediator, right? He's sort of someone who very much values justice. And so he steps into that situation and the Hebrews are like, who are you? Who are you, Moses, to tell us what to do? Like, get away. We, we know you killed the Egyptian. You're going to kill one of us too? And that makes Moses very afraid because he realizes people know. He didn't think anybody knew this that he killed the Egyptian, so he goes on the run, and it actually says Pharaoh himself was seeking to kill Moses, wanted to kill him, so he runs. So that's the first 40 years. The next 40 years of Moses' life is spent in that wilderness, is spent in Midian. He basically runs um, to, you know, across the Sinai Peninsula into Midian. Um, he becomes a shepherd there. He finds a wife. He has kids for those 40 years, up until the point he's about 80 years old. Now he's a shepherd boy. And so that's where we kind of pick up the story that Moses, as a maybe 80-year-old shepherd, uh, leading his flocks around the wilderness of, of, of Sinai. And it says this, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the, the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This was Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. They called it Mount Horeb. This is Mount Sinai, the same place he would come later and receive the Ten Commandments, right? This is that same mountain. He comes there, and, and there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now, uh, the, the Hebrew to English translation here of this story is a little bit tricky and technical, the way that it's described, this bush, right? That Moses is tending his flock. He's out in the, the wilderness. He comes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and he sees this bush that's it's burning, but it's not burning. And really the name burning bush, like in my Bible, it says Moses in the burning bush. That's really a misnomer because this bush is not burning. It's not a burning bush. It's a bush with a flame in it. It, it really, the technical kind of language is the flame was in the midst of the bush. It's not using the bush for fuel. Does that make sense? It's not burning the bush. The, the, the limbs of the bush are not on fire. It's not being consumed. So this flame is individual from the bush itself. It's just sort of in the midst of the bush. And that is significant. In fact, um, R.C. Sproul, some of y'all may know who R.C. Sproul is. He, he passed a couple years ago. Great preacher, theologian, author of the you know, latter 1900s into the 2000s. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers. He said this about that very moment in history. This is what he writes. He says, I believe the answer to Moses' question, and again, Moses' question is, why is the bush on fire but not being consumed? That's his question. R.C. Sproul said, I believe the answer to that question opens up the whole redemptive story. It encapsulates the very essence of God's self-revelation in history and in his word right there in that moment. What R.C. Sproul is saying is that question that Moses is asking, why is this bush, why, why is there a fire that's not consuming the bush? It's one of the most important questions ever asked in human history because it reveals something very deep about who God is. And God's going to, through the rest of this story, reveal that to us. This is a, what we call a, a theophany. 
It's, it's God's revelation, sort of a physical manifestation of his glory. We see this many, many times throughout scripture. This is not the first time we see it. This won't be the last time we see God basically reveal himself and reveal his glory, what the Hebrews called the Shekinah, the glory of God, right? The visible manifestation of his glory, often manifested in fire to his people. Right? Uh, we actually see this in Genesis, you know, when Abraham's sitting in the kind of outside his tent and three visitors show up to him. And then one visitor kind of hangs back and he's talking with this guy and they're talking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And he pleads with him. It's kind of like, is this a man? Is this an angel? Is this God? Right? It, it's God in the flesh, right? It's a manifestation of God himself, right? Remember when uh, Jacob, Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with this angel man, God in a river, right? In the middle of the night. And then the sun comes up and he breaks Jacob's hip because he can't see him face to face. This is, this is God, visible God in, in the Old Testament. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They get thrown in. Three went in the fire. Four came out, right? One is in there in the midst of the fire like a son of the gods. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says, right? Visible manifestation of God that God often kind of shows up. And sometimes it's, it's in the form of a, a person or a person-like character. And sometimes it's just, it's just fire, right? We see fire come down from heaven, uh, with Elijah on Mount Carmel, we see God show up later in the Exodus story, leading his people in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. This is the Shekinah glory of God. And right here in this bush, right there, like the, just the smallest little moment, uh, uh, you know, those who, who study these things and kind of know that area, say it's probably just a bramble bush, just a normal little bramble out in the desert, this little flame the glory of God in the midst of it. Not using the bush for anything, but just to be in the midst. Clearly, this catches Moses' attention, right? He's probably seen bushes on fire before. He's been a shepherd for 40 years out in this part of the world in the desert. I'm sure he's seen bushes burning up before, but this is different. And so he turns aside and he asks that question, like, what, what, what's going on here? And so let's keep reading. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, quickly, um, Moses, Moses, right? Anytime that in, in Hebrew thought in literature, when a name is called out twice, that's intimacy. That's what that means. When a name is said two, two times, it's intimacy. And I don't know if like, you ever read this story and kind of think, like, how did God say that? Moses, like, what? Like, was he big and booming and scary? I don't know. Like, sometimes we hear God speak in scriptures, like the sound of many waters and it's thunder and lightning and it's cloud and it's craziness. I, I, honestly, I think in this moment it was just Moses. Moses. It's, it's intimate. It's personal. And he says, here I am. And then God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Well, why is it holy ground? Why is the place where Moses now is standing, why is that holy ground? That's holy ground for the same reason that that bush is not consumed. The presence and the glory of God is there. It's holy ground. And just as a, a note there for us as Christians, because I know we read stories like this at times and we think, man, if I'd only seen what Moses saw, right? I'd only seen the, the flame and the burning bush. I'd believe in God. 
I'd follow him or I'd have the, the power or the faith in my life to kind of do things that God's calling me to do. If I had seen a flame in a bush speaking to me or if I had seen the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, if I had parted the Red Sea or whatever. And the amazing thing is God in this bush is saying, God, Moses, you're in the presence of God. You're on holy ground. Understand, Christian, that if you're a follower of Jesus, the presence of God is here, right here. In you, living, present, Shekinah glory of God, living inside of you by his Holy Spirit. I believe it would blow Moses' mind to hear that that flame is right here, that he's in us. He would be jealous of us, I guarantee you. And he's going, man, I got to talk to a bush. You guys get to talk to him every day. He's living in you. He's given us his word. We know who he is, and he's given us his power and his glory, and it resides within us by the Holy Spirit, y'all. Every second of every day for us as Christians is holy ground. You get that? Always holy ground. Not because of us, because of the glory of God that is in us by faith in Jesus Christ. Moses, you're on holy ground, he tells him. And he says, take off your sandals, right? And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this... Moses hid his face because he was afraid even to look at God. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their sufferings. Hold on to verse 7. We're going to come back to it, okay? Verse 7 is important. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has come to me, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What's Moses' knee-jerk reaction to God telling him, I have a purpose for you. I have a mission for you. I have a calling on your life. You go, you're going to talk to Pharaoh, and you're going to get my people out of Egypt. What's Moses' reaction to that? Who am I? You ever asked that question? Yes, you've asked that question. Who am I? What? Am, am I worthy to know you, God? Am I worthy to hear from you, God? Am I worthy to be in your presence, God? Am I worthy to live according to the purpose that you have in redemptive history, God? Am I worthy of anything from you, God? Who in the world am I? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. This is Moses's first reaction. Moses, we understand too, because Moses really, like he struggles with his identity. Again, his name is just the boy from the water. He's an Egyptian that the Egyptians despise. He's an Israelite that the Israelites despise. He's a shepherd, but that's not what he was raised to do. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. And he's a murderer and nobody knows it. Moses has no identity. He doesn't know who he is. He literally is wondering that for 80 years of his life now. Where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Where do I fit into the story? Where do I fit into the purposes of God in this world? Who in the world am I? And now a bush is talking to me. Maybe I've been in the desert too long. I don't know. But all I know is this old flame is telling me to go let the people go. And I just need to know, God, who am I? Here's the answer to that question. God said, 
I will be with you. It's not really an answer to the question, but it's an answer to the question. Who am I? And God goes, I'm with you, Moses. Your question about who you are or are not is not relevant right now. If you want to know who you are, if you want to know what your purpose is in this world, you get to know God. You lean into him. You look to him. You follow him exactly where he's leading you to go, exactly what he's calling you to do, calling you to be. Man, you trust in him. Because here's the thing, man. We, if, if somebody in 21st century America was writing this story right here, and Moses is struggling with his identity, he would get to that burning bush moment, and all it would be would be God just patting Moses on the head, telling Moses that everything's okay, telling Moses that he's special and sweet, telling Moses that he just needs to have better self-esteem and look inside himself to figure it all out. That's what God would be saying. And that's nonsense. Because we ain't going to find anything looking inside not going to find anything finding like looking for my identity in myself or in this world. We're not going to find anything by looking down or looking in. We're going to find everything we need to find by looking up, by looking to him, by listening to him and trusting in him and letting him answer the question, who am I with a resounding, I'm with you. That's what you need to know right now. And you want to find out who you are, you follow me. You listen to me. You trust in me and I will show you everything everything that you need to know. And so Moses kind of goes on here because he's still struggling. He's still wondering. Well, God says to him, the sign to you will be that I've sent you that I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and you'll worship God on this mountain. In verse 13, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, okay, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? That's what he asked, right? So he's just having this whole conversation with the flame here. And he's just like, okay, fine, I, I, I get it. You're with me, you're gonna do uh, whatever. But if I go to them now, and I'm like, hey, the God of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like you know, you know the stories that you guys have heard for 400 years from your ancestors, all that stuff. Um, that God has sent me here, and he said he's gonna deliver us. He's gonna deliver you guys out of the hands of the Egyptians. And what if they ask me, yeah, but what's his name? What do I say? It's an interesting question, isn't it, right? Because you got to imagine, the Hebrews have lived there for 400 years. Again, they probably knew the stories pretty well. They had an oral tradition. They would teach each other. They would sit down at dinner, and they would talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would talk about what God had done to get their people to Egypt, I'm sure. And they knew a lot of the stories. But I guarantee you, at the same time, they probably struggled oftentimes being in the land that they lived in to also kind of lean towards maybe some of those gods as well. You know, they lived in a nation of gods and gold, Egypt, gods everywhere. And they all had names, different names, all sorts of names. We'll talk about them in a second. They were gods of the Nile and gods of fertility and gods of the earth and gods of creation and gods of protection and gods of the sky and gods of everything all over the place. They all had names. Who's this God that you're talking about? Give us his name. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So again, God's answer, such an interesting answer. It's like, is that a name? What did you just say? I asked you for your name and all you said is, 
I am. You, you gave me a verb. When God said I am, it's a verb. It's to be. Like literally just to, to be. That's what he says. I, I just am. Moses, you want my name? I am. See, names were important. Names were very important to the Hebrew people um, throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We see very, uh, very many stories where names are kind of shown to us as having deep-rooted meaning in the salvation stories of, of God. We think about Abraham. His name was Abram, father, and then God renamed him Abraham, father of many nations, right? Jacob, his name was Jacob. He strives with men. That's what Jacob means. And then he renamed him Israel, which means wrestles with God, right? So we just have all these different names throughout scripture that really do have meaning and have purpose. And then God gives us his name here. The Hebrews knew God by all sorts of names. In the Old Testament scriptures, we see many, many names that they give to God as they address him. Elohim being kind of the most basic, just means God. It's really a plural, by the way, which is interesting. Plural name for the one true God. They call him God Most High, El Elyon. They call him God Almighty, El Shaddai. They call him Holy God, Sovereign Lord, Adonai. They call him Provider, Yahweh, Jireh. They call him the God who sees. They call him our shepherd, our maker, our healer, the God who is always there, our righteousness, our provision, our peace, the everlasting God, our redeemer, our rock, the ancient of days. But here, God names himself. It's a personal name. And he says, I am. It's the name that God intends for the Israelites to to have and to love and to lift up for all generations. Verse 15 says, God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. Y'all see in your Bibles, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Anytime you see Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, all caps in the Old Testament, that's the name Yahweh. That's what it is, right? So they, the stand-in for that was the, the word, the Lord, because they wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't even say that name. Uh, it was just the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Again, names for the, the Hebrews. This was identity. God was revealing himself to Moses in this moment. So what does it mean? What does it mean that God is I am? God just is. He is the God who is. What does that mean? Uh, several things that that means. And I kind of want to walk us through this. I am means God is eternal. That's the first thing it means. God is eternal. God never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He never started to exist. Raise your hand, parents, if you've ever gotten that question from your kids. Where did God come from? When did God begin to exist? Right? Okay, a few of us, right? It's a hard question, but the answer is, like, don't be afraid to just tell your kid. He didn't. I can't answer that question because God never started, and God's never going to end. He just is. God is I am. He's eternal. Number two, he's self-existing. Self-existing, self-sustaining. Nothing keeps God being. Nothing keeps God existing but himself. He just keeps on being. He just keeps on existing. Colossians 1 tells us that in him all things hold together. You and I wouldn't exist without him. We are needy. We are contingent beings. We need him to exist. And that's the same truth for every rock, every tree, every fish, every bird, every star, every planet, every table, every chair, every microphone stand, every guitar, every drum set. They need God to exist. Without him, none of that happens and none of that exists. That's not true of God. He needs nothing and no one. He just is. Always has been, always will be. Number three, God is completely free. Completely free. Later, God, in, in reference to Pharaoh, where he says, I am who I am. Later, he says about Pharaoh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will harden whom I will harden. 
right? Because God is free. No one tells God what he can or cannot do or how he can do it or when he could do it or why he should or shouldn't do it. God says in Isaiah 40, no one is my counselor. I don't go and ask people's advice about things. Listen, like God, God loves you. God loves you deeply and God loves you intimately. Listen, he doesn't love your opinions and he doesn't need them. He's God. He's free. God acts as he chooses to act. And because he's free, number four, God is sovereign. I am means I am sovereign. He has all power and all authority in the universe to make the rules. He rules nature, all creation. This is, this is God's introduction of himself, right, to humanity to say, I am completely over all things, science, math, music, gravity, where planets are in the solar system, when and where an earthquake will strike, when a baby bird will be born, and when it will die. I am sovereign over it all. And this, by the way, was the point of the plagues. I don't know if you know this, but God says in the last plague, the 10th plague, I am making judgment on the gods of Egypt. He was making a point. You see, the Egyptians, they worshiped all sorts of gods with all sorts of names. They had a god named Hapi, and it was the god of the Nile. What was the first plague? Nile turns to blood. Hapi, you are not the god of the Nile. I am. That was the point. They had a god named Heket. She was the goddess of fertility with the head of a frog. What does God do? Frogs everywhere. Heket, you ain't no god. I am. They had a god named Geb. It was the god of the earth. And then he brings the dust to the earth and turns it into lice all over the nation of Israel. Geb is not a god. I am. They had a god named Kepri. It was the god of creation with the head of a fly. God sends flies into Egypt everywhere in everybody's houses. Can you imagine how nasty that was? Right? God's just making the point. Kepri, you are not the god of this. I am. Hathor was their god of protection, head of a cow. God kills all the livestock. Not a god, I am. Isis, the god of medicine, the god of peace. God brings boils and sores on the Egyptians that nobody can heal because Isis is no god at all. I am. Newt was the god of the sky, and God brings storms, and he brings hail, and he brings locusts from the skies because Newt was no god at all. I am. And then the two chief gods of, Israel, of, of Egypt, the sun god, Ra. You might have heard of Ra. It's their chief god right up under Pharaoh himself, who is the main chief god. But Ra was the god of the sun. The ninth plague says that God blacks out the sun for three days. A darkness so thick it says you could feel it. Because Ra is no God. I am. And then finally, after warning, after warning, after warning to Pharaoh, he tells Pharaoh, this one's going to be the worst of all the plagues. I myself am going to come through the land of Egypt and I will kill the firstborn of every family if you don't let my people go. And Pharaoh, because he believed himself the chief God of all gods, said no. And so God does exactly what he says he's going to do. And the scriptures tell us that the firstborn of all the families of Egypt die, including the firstborn of Pharaoh himself. If Pharaoh cannot save his own flesh and blood, he's no God. I am his God. That's the point. 
God is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over all history. He sets up kings and kingdoms and decides when they fall. He is the God of morality. He decides, that means what's right and what's wrong, what's just and unjust. God makes the rules. Does he not, when he brings his people out of Egypt and puts them at Mount Sinai, give them 10 rules right off the bat, their constitution to live by? This is what's good. This is what's right. I define it. I am the God who makes the rules. I am the God who calls it good or not good, evil or righteous. That is me. I am. That's what I am is. This is who God is. This is his name, and this is what it means. But two more things. Two more things that I am tells us about God. And I want to mention these two things together, that God is transcendent and God is imminent. He is transcendent and he is imminent. Transcendent means that God is above and he is beyond all human capabilities of understanding. God is indescribable, as it were. He's unable to be contained. He's unable to be fully defined that God is holy and God is sovereign and God is mighty. He is unreachable. He is unsearchable. He is untouchable. Transcendence, I am. But, and this is what's amazing about God, that he's not just that that he's also imminent. And imminent, um, and by the way, that is spelled correctly. There's two kinds of imminent. Um, this word imminent, this word imminent means not only is God all of those things, he's also present. He's also here. He's also involved. He's also invested. You see, this is not the gods of Egypt. This is not the Roman pantheon. This is not the false idols of Mesopotamia or uh, any of the other nations around them or the Canaanites. They could, they could conceive of gods that, yes, were maybe transcendent, maybe great, maybe honorable in that way, but they were also very distant. They were very aloof. They weren't involved in human history. Or they could conceive of gods that were involved in human history, but they were unholy and they were unrighteous and they were crazy. But this God is both transcendent and holy and great and mighty and present and imminent and with us and good and righteous in all of his ways. This God is both and only the one true God could be all of that. And he wraps all of that up in saying, my name is I am. I am. Because this is who God is. So I want to go back to verse 7. I told you just to hold on to verse 7 because listen to what God says about what he's doing here as he talks to Moses here in this moment. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their sufferings. Do you hear those three words that God used right there? I have seen, I have heard, and I am concerned. Other translations say, I, I acknowledge. God is a God who sees. That yes, he's transcendent, and he's holy, and he's up above, and he's almighty, and he's over all things, and he's sovereign. But man, he sees. He sees us. He's not afraid to look into our lives, into the sufferings, and the pain, and the hurt, and the struggles of his people. He said he hears that even though God is this transcendent and wonderful almighty I am, that he still hears the prayers of his people, the cries of our hearts in our darkest and hardest moments. And then it says, I'm concerned. 
That, that, that means I'm in vet, like I care. Not only does he see, not only does he, he cares about it. That's the God that is showing up in this moment for Moses. This almighty I am to say, I am this great God. I am this wonderful, holy, unimaginably big God. And yet I care because I see and I hear the sufferings of my people. I love that uh, I, I was not here last Sunday and I got to listen to Pastor Scott's sermon a couple days later. And man, I just love that he shared the story of the woman at the well last Sunday. Jesus meeting with this woman at the well. And man, I thought that was really cool knowing I was going to preach this message today because this is the same story. Is it not? It's exactly the same story. It's a person struggling and broken, checkered past all by themselves, meeting the great and holy God in a moment of brokenness and hurt, in need of something, in need of someone, in need of a help, in need of a hope, someone who knows everything about them. Moses doesn't even know himself. And God's just coming to say, I'm with you and I am. And I hear you and I see you. I see all of my people. And Moses, you're one of those people. And I've seen everything about you. I know everything about you and I'm moving towards it, Moses. I'm coming in. I'm listening, I'm seeing, and I'm moving, and I'm working. And what is the greatest way in which God ever did this? And I, and I told you, like, like R.C. Sproul said, this moment kind of reveals to us just the nature of God, and we see this fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus. So I just want to really end up with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. At this glory of God, um, man, even, even better than it being revealed in a bush, was revealed finally and fully and perfectly in a man. His name is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine. There's that Shekinah glory, right? Has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The same way that God moved into the sufferings of his people in Egypt, y'all, he's moved into our sufferings through Christ. And, and let's not kid ourselves. Listen, he's not just moved into our sufferings. He's moved into our sins. He's moved into the things that we have done, the mistakes that we have made, the failures that we have brought upon ourselves by our own unwillingness to obey this God. He, instead of turning away from us, turns toward us, just like he did for the Israelites, just like he did for Moses to reveal himself to them. He has now revealed himself to us perfectly and fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God in the face of of Christ. He didn't come in a bush this time. He came in a man. And he didn't do his work through a third party like Moses to teach and to do miracles and to lead his people. He did it himself. Jesus is this flame in this bush. Jesus is the fourth man in the fire. Jesus is the pillar by day and by night leading his people. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is the presence and the glory of God. The name Jesus, you know what it means in the Hebrew? It's Yeshua. That Yah, that Yah, that's Yahweh. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. 
That's what the name Jesus is. That's his name. And Paul writes in Philippians 2 that God has given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's his name. It's Jesus, and we can say it, and we can sing it, and we can pray in it because he's given us his glory in the face of Christ. And just like all those thousands of years ago that he moved into the pain and the suffering and the brokenness of his people, so he is moving into ours through Jesus Christ. That's a holy moment. That's a holy moment. When we encounter God, really when God encounters us, right, comes to us, calls to us in the middle of our struggles. in the middle of an identity crisis. Maybe you don't know who you are. In the middle of our loss, in the middle of grief. In the last couple of weeks, I mean, honestly, it's been a hard couple of weeks, but man, it's been a holy moment. Just to see God move into that, speak into that. Reveal himself to me, reveal himself to so many families here at the church, reveal himself to us. When you encounter God in your addictions, in your hurts, church hurts, health issues, family struggles, marital problems, when you encounter God in the midst of your sin and your failure and your unworthiness, here's my encouragement today. When all you can see, like Moses, when all you can see is who you are not, just let God answer, yeah, but I am. But I am. So you guys stand with me. Man, let's just worship that God today. Let's worship God for who he is. God, we love you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, the great I am, your son, we pray. Amen.